welcome to Move Conversations. This is your host, Venkat. In this edition of Move Conversations, I talked to Ms. Michelle Booker, well-known author of the book, The Grey Rhino, How to Recognize and Act on Obvious Dangers We Ignore. She also gave a very popular TED Talk on the same theme in 2019 that has garnered about 2.5 million views. She is the founder of Grey Rhino and Company. More recently, she published yet another book, You Are What You Risk, which we will discuss with her in the next part of our conversation. Michelle started her financial, uh, sorry, career in financial media, but subsequently she worked in the Chicago Council of um, Global Affairs and was the president of the World Policy Institute. She has been interviewed in CNN, CNBC, MSNBC, Fox News, and you name it. Her book, The Grey Rhino, is the number one best-selling English language book in China and a number one Amazon bestseller in financial risk management category. There is more significance to the popularity of her book in China, and we will talk about it soon. But more recently, the well-known K-pop group, BTS, their smash hit album, B, has a track, Blue and Grey, which has the lines, a grey rhino that is coming towards me. Absently, I stand with vacant eyes. Welcome to Move Conversations, Michelle. You have crossed the generation divide and inspired even the K-pop boy bands. <laughs> Thank you. I have to say, like all the policy influence is is like that got me excited. But but <laughs> I've got cred with my nieces and nephews now with BTS. <laughs> so that's like that's exciting on a whole new level. So I'm, I'm really, really excited. But but also because, you know, it's about depression and anxiety, which is something that that is such a huge issue, particularly over the past 18 months. Sure. And so I'm really glad that they're using the idea to bring attention to something that we really need to take a fresh look at and do something about. So, so super grateful for that. Absolutely. Absolutely. So many of our viewers and listeners are familiar with the term black swan, you know, which are hard to predict or of low probability occurrence, but have a high impact. But you say gray rhinos are highly probable, high impact threats, but are neglected or ignored. So these are not about mid-air collisions between an asteroid and an aeroplane, but about known, but ignored dangers. So please explain the concept and the, of course, how do you chose the, you know, how you chose that metaphor? Yeah, well, the, uh, you know, the, the cover of the book kind of says it, you know, imagine this, this big gray rhino in front of you, it's two tons, it's got a horn, it's really scary, and it's coming at you. And it gives you a choice of, of what are you going to do. And, um, you know, the subtitle says ignored. And we, we put that in because when we were first talking to editors in the United States, they said, what do you mean we don't pay attention to obvious things? Why do you need a book to talk about obvious things? Because if they're obvious, we're dealing with them. That's, of course, so American. <laughs> you know, it's like, what do you mean? Well, of course, you know, we know what we're doing. And so, you know, the the idea was never really about the ignored part of it. It was that, you know, I mean, we have the elephant in the room for that. That's the, the thing that by definition is ignored. ignored and yeah. so my point with ignored is really is that you're more likely to get trampled than you think. And <laughs> so we, you know, we sort of 
corrected for the way that people didn't understand that we need a fresh look at the obvious. And now we're, we're, I've been trying in my language to, to re-correct for what apparently was an <laughs> overcorrection. But the definition really is, you know, obvious, probable, high impact, like a big rhino coming at Absolutely. you. And I really wanted to, to create that emotional connection. That's what the metaphor True. is for. True. And the gray part of it is because um, all rhinos are gray. But if you study them a little bit, there's something called a black rhino and there's something called a white, white. rhino. The black one's not actually black and the white one's not oh, actually white. white. Yeah. It's great. So that's kind of a metaphor for the, um, you know, for the not paying enough attention to the thing that's really obvious part of it. So that's where the gray came from. No, that's very nice because it's all shades of gray, right? And especially all these uh, issues, they're all having shades of gray, right? It's not like very clear very distinct right so it's true and actually appreciating the gray is is i think part of, of really embracing the metaphor because another thing i think is, is very american i mean everybody does it to some degree but i degree but we're particularly guilty guilty of it in the united states is this you know idea of if you don't know something absolutely predict that's absolutely specifically predictable like if you don't know that the stock market is going to fall by three percent on september 9th then you don't know. And so actually dealing with gray rhinos, you know, you know, it's coming at you. You don't know exactly how everything is going to play out, but you've got a pretty good picture good of picture, the, yeah. the parameters. And so that shades of gray, actually, I think, you know, adds some nice nuance to the metaphor as well. Absolutely. So, so what you're saying is like issues like climate change, cyber attack, disruptive technologies, financial crisis, including uh, wildfires, all of these things are highly obvious, but ignored threats, right? So but in your the key book- part is not necessarily ignored. Some people are paying attention to them. Yeah, you know, exactly. people are talking about them. And it's just that, you know, some people, you know, just turn the other way and some people do something. And, and that's really the crux of it is that what makes, what makes the difference between the people who see the obvious thing and actually keep their eyes on it and do something about it and the ones who are like, well, it's obvious, of course, we're dealing with it. So we'll just like push it off to the side and let somebody else deal with it. So that gives me a, you know, a very good uh, segue for me to ask, right? How do different people deal with this, you know, the gray rhinos? And, and when I read your book, it seems to parallel the five stages of dealing with grief. Can you talk more about it? Well, you know, it's funny when you're when you're writing a book, because, of course, you know, I started as as a writer and, and, you know, I was just up to my ears in books when I was a kid. So, you know, the literary part of it is very part, important to me. And when you have a book, it's important to have a narrative arc to tell a story. And so I would as I was, you know, pulling the book together, people would say, well, OK, so why don't people deal with this? And I realized that the answer depends on where you are in the stage of the crisis. And of course, it starts with denial. So I think of denial, of course, you think of, of Elizabeth Kubler-Ross and her five stages of grief. And, and so while there's a, you know, there's a sort of an homage to her, and the five stages, you know, are somewhat related to her five stages, but they're not quite the same. So it basically starts with denial that goes to muddling, which is when you, you accept it's there, but you have a 1000 reasons not to do something about it, you have diagnosing, which is when you shift to, okay, what does it take? And who's going to do it? And then there's the panic, which is the, ah, it's when everybody's freaking out, right. which can be the reason to act, but it also too often is the reason to do the wrong thing. Right. And then there's action, which doesn't just stop with acting. It includes 
tracking and making sure that what you did is having the result that you want and adjusting if you need to. So different people tend to react and different organizations and policymakers react differently at different stages. Um, but then I realized, and this is something that I develop much more in You Are What You Risk, is that not everybody reacts the same way. And there are lots of really interesting sociological and cultural and, and other reasons that go into why people are very different and how they act. And of course, part of the premise of the gray rhino is that, you know, people who consciously recognize that you might not have your eye on the rhino in front of you, those are the ones who are more likely to respond. And so the recognizing it is, is actually in many cases a conscious decision. And mm. that's the most important thing about it. Right. So you refer to policymakers. So, you know, uh, and Grey Rhino is the number one best-selling English language book in China. It was um, seen on President Xi's uh, bookshelf. Policymakers are known to read and, you know, talk about your book. In 2017, your concept famously crashed the Chinese market, stock market by 4 to 5%. How did you manage all these things? Well, I have to say that, you know, so much of the credit credit in China goes to Citic, my publisher. I mean, they just did a fantastic job. Right. Um, I mean, I think the idea, the central idea was really powerful and continues to be, and it becomes more and more and more relevant. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's funny, at the very beginning of my career, when I was a financial journalist, and even when I was, you know, training as a journalist, the, the mantra was, you know, just just tell the story mm. and, you know, don't take sides, don't put your opinion into things. And and very quickly, you know, I'd be interviewing guys who were, you know, trading Brady bonds, and emerging markets debt and, you know, 25 year old guys who didn't speak Spanish. And I was supposed to ask them about, you know, what the finance minister of Ecuador was was meant. And I was mm. like, well, you know, I speak Spanish and I just talked to him last week. What? there's something wrong with this, you know? <laughs> and so I very quickly switched into the, you know, analysis and saying what I thought, which is of course, exactly the opposite of what journalists are, are trained to do, but it's right. changed a little bit um, these days. But, right. you know, I started really thinking about impact and, and I taught at Columbia University for a while, teaching policy master's students to think about okay, what do you want to happen as a result of what you're saying? Mm -hmm. And I have to say, you know, it, I'm just so amazed at how uh, the Chinese economic policy establishment has sort of taken the idea and used it in ways that, that I really, you know, it's, I could only have dreamed of. And, uh, you know, I remember when they came out, uh, there's a story in the Wall Street Journal, I think it was in, in December of 2017, when someone in Beijing told the journal reporter, you know, the United States is a gray rhino. And if they're talking <laughs> about the, the tax plan, and they actually changed their monetary policy, you know, someone on Twitter, you know, reached out, he was like, wow, you just you just changed Chinese policy, monetary policy. And I was like, well, you know, there were a lot of people putting a lot of you know thought and research into that, too. It wasn't just me. But but I do think about that a lot when I write something and I mentor young writers. And the first thing I ask a mentee is, I, I say, who do you want to do different? What who do you want to do what differently because of what you've written? Right. And, you know, the Grey Rhino is such a great example of it. And of course, ideas sometimes go out and they they take they take on their own life, uh, which has happened in a really beautiful way here. So, you know, building on that, I mean, uh, we have seen crackdown on the big tech in China over the last uh, many months. 
would you say that the Chinese government saw some gray rhinos in the tech sector and is acting accordingly or this is something else? Absolutely. You know, there was, you know, there were a lot of um, a lot of uh, references in in the Chinese media, you know, months and months ago before mm-hmm. the actions were taken in uh, mm-hmm. in the last couple months. Mm-hmm. And I think it's something that, you know, it's a discussion that policymakers around the world uh, have certainly had their eyes on. I mean, in, in the States, you know, we we look at social media and, uh, you know, dissemination of misinformation mm. and, you know, data privacy. And, you know, Europe's been very proactive on, on data privacy, although their, you know, GDPR has other problems of its own, which I won't yeah. go into. You know, <laughs> carpal tunnel syndrome from clicking all of those stupid <laughs> pop-ups on your, on your website. Oh, yeah, exactly. Yeah, I mean, like, like and then uh, even then they, you know, uh, like you know, sort of uh, digression maybe for others, but like uh, they just want you to accept uh, lock, stock, and barrel. And even if they give you a menu of choices, it's not like like that, uh, you know, clear. And especially for people outside of uh, EU, it doesn't give much uh, sort of opt out. Well, what worries me, and and a couple of people have written about this, is you know you have to click all those things, and that actually becomes very dangerous. Hmm. Like you don't always know what you're clicking on. You think you're clicking on a little X close box. You could be agreeing to something you have no idea. It's not even up there what you've agreed to. And so that it actually creates all sorts of, of unintended problems. And I, I really think it needs to be revisited. But, but you know, I think all around the world, there are big, big social questions around technology. Um, you know, Kaifu Lee has written about a lot of these. Um, I've spoken about some of the, you know, really the, the bigger social questions about technology. I've often been asked by the Chinese media, you know, about, uh, you know, data questions and some of the fights between some of the technology companies. And it's a huge issue. I think China has uh, been, you know, much more sort of, you know, public and, um, you know, forceful about it than other countries. But it's, it's a, it's a question that people in, in countries all around the world need to deal with. And I think it's something that really needs a lot of global coordination because of the way information flows. I mean, it's you, you can create some barriers to information flowing across borders, but it's, you know, it's like water. It finds it finds another way to go. So it's yeah. it's a huge problem. And one of the things that has really impressed me about China, whether it's about financial risk, which is, of course, you know, what what I talk about a lot and and, you know, monetary policy is the questions I get from the Chinese media are so much more forward-looking and focused mm. on these obvious problems than in the States. You know, when I, you know, in before times, you know, before the pandemic started, <laughs> yeah. um, you know, I was back and forth to China quite a bit and it felt like like whiplash, the, the risk conversations in China where people were very conscious of these financial risks. And then I come back to the United States and people were like, oh yeah, let's just, let's just pump some more air into these, these <laughs> asset bubbles. And, and then the, the Western press would be like, oh yeah, you know, China, boy, they've got a real problem. And I'm like, <laughs> yeah. And they're talking about it and it's a wicked problem. It's not easy to solve, but exactly. they're actually paying attention to it. And like, if we paid enough attention to our own problems here, we might, yes, we might be more freaked out, but we also might be heading off bigger problems down the road. 
So, you know, uh, you mentioned wicket problems and uh, lack of attention to it in that context. You know, I love the quote from your book. Inertia is one of the most powerful forces preventing us from getting out of the way of a known challenge. Right. And, uh, you know, I remember that I often used to tell my friends and uh, also my students that I understood Newton's law of inertia better in professional and personal life than ever as a high school science student. Right. So even when we do recognize the existence of a clear present danger, clear and present danger, why business, government and society do not act on them? Other than inertia, what else comes in the way? Well, in many cases, it's, you know, it's the underlying personality. Mm -hmm. uh, in many cases, it's it's the sort of peer pressure, the group mm. think. I mean, you know, nobody likes the person who raises the, the red flag. I've, I've written recently about social risk, which mm. is really what that is, saying the thing that actually benefits the company or the organization or the government to pay attention to, but nobody wants to hear it. So you're actually doing something good for the organization, but you get punished for it. You know, they say no good deed goes unpunished, but also, you know, incentives, they're, they're all wrong. In the U.S., for example, we've got these, you know, very short-term political cycles and so, you know, the minute somebody gets elected, they're raising money and thinking about the, the next cycle, the, you know, the primary system where, you know, you choose candidates before the main election is set up completely wrong so that only the most extreme people vote in those. You yeah. get a very small percentage of the population who's choosing those candidates Correct. and the candidates cater to the most extreme people. And you're not you're not getting the right people. And there there's a group called Unite America that's, that's actually working on this problem, trying to change the electoral system so it makes more room for the moderate, sensible voices, which is how a lot of Americans like to think of ourselves, even right. though the reality lately has has not quite <laughs> been that. So, you know, the incentives, the, you know, the the key performance indicators in mm. companies that, you know, quarterly reports, there, there's, there's been a big movement on and off to, to get rid of the quarterly reports to get companies to look longer term. Mm. Mm. And it's, you know, and, and the, the, the set of reasons are slightly different for, for every person. And I go into that in a lot more detail in you are what you risk, but there are, there are big, you know, sort of structural, organizational, cultural, and cognitive things that get in the way. Right. And my point is that once once you start to be aware of those, you can start changing them to try to get the obstacles out of the way so that you can actually act more decisively and swiftly when you do see the gray rhino coming at you. Right. And like the other point that you make later in the book is like, it could even be, a, you know, what you perceive as a threat can even be opportunity. Like you give the example of TV networks, you know, for them, internet began as a threat, but, but Yahoo, Google, etc. saw it very differently and they saw it as an opportunity. So basically, gray rhinos can present opportunities to some while others may see it as, a, as threats, right? Absolutely. And, and that's so key. Or the discussion right now about, about ESG and climate change. Hmm. You know, you see that, you know, the assets under management have more than doubled hmm. uh, over the past 18 months. And, that, and that's really amazing. But then right. there are people who are, who are trying to take advantage of it. But, you know, one of the, one of the things I wrestled with was with the book was, you know, I went to, to, to Africa, I went on safari, right. you know, my, my accountant was totally okay with me. <laughs> deducting that expense. It was a very, very legitimate business expense on, on many levels. Sure. Um, but, you know, so, and I learned a lot more about the poaching crisis. And then I started feeling guilty that here I'm, I'm, you know, depicting the gray rhino as this, you know, big, scary thing when actually humans are a bigger threat 
to rhinos than they are to, <laughs> to us. <laughs> to us. Yeah, so yeah. I started to really make that that point um, very clearly. And then the funny thing is, you know, all my friends started sending me these, these like videos of, of cute baby rhinos. Mm -hmm. There's, there's yeah. one like playing with a goat, one playing with a puppy. They're absolutely, yeah. go to cute. YouTube. They're, <laughs> just yeah. look for baby rhino videos. It's right. the best thing. And so I, you know, and I, I, I talk about those baby rhinos now. It's like, you want to, you want to, Pay attention to the problem when it's when it's small and cute and you can actually do something about it, because that's, you know, that's one of metaphor. the paradoxes is that the sooner you deal with something, the less it costs and the more likely you are to succeed. But unfortunately, when they're still small and manageable, mm -hmm. most people don't bother to pay attention. And, and that's one of the things that I'm, I'm trying to change. Right. So. You know, you also expand on uh, Donald Rumsfeld's famous um, quote about known knowns, known unknowns, and unknown unknowns. And you added uh, unknown known. Right? So can you please explain how these are the gray rhinos? Well, I think it goes back a little bit to the to the need for nuance that I was talking about before. Right. That that no, you don't know exactly how everything is going to play out, but you've got a very big idea of the outline mm -hmm. and the nature of the problem. Mm -hmm. And you know, part of the reason that these things are unknown is because there's a feedback loop mm. that you know, we're so used to talking about risk, you know, doing a risk analysis, you know, how right. likely is this and whatever. And, you know, in many cases, those likelihoods are just pulled straight out of the air. <laughs> but, um, but there's a feedback loop that when you recognize the existence of a risk, when you decide to do something about it, that actually changes the outcome. And I think in some ways, that's, that's yeah. part of why people are afraid of doing something, because if, you know, you predict that some catastrophe is going to happen and you go and you do the things that you need to do to prevent it, you look at like, say, you know, the Y2K bug, you know, mm. people, mm. people put a lot of, of hours and money into making sure that that wasn't a problem. It right. didn't turn out to be a big problem. We don't know if it wasn't a big problem in the first place or if it was because all of those efforts. We did all of that. Went. Yeah, it depends now, course, on who you ask, right? <laughs> Yeah, the conspiracy theorists will, you know, tell you, oh, it was all a hoax in, in the first place. But, you know, people don't want to go and fix a problem and then get accused of, you know, being a Cassandra or a, a chicken little because right. they predicted a problem that didn't happen when the fact that the problem didn't happen is actually evidence that they succeeded in doing what they're going to do. Right. And, you know, in the context of uh, prevention, uh, which you spoke about now and in the context of incentives that you spoke about uh, earlier. Um, to stop the gray rhinos isn't, um, what should I say, governance also an uh, important thing. Like you cite a fascinating experiment in the Indian state of Gujarat. And you say that when auditors received a payment from a third party, but not the company that they were inspecting, and they received also even bonuses for accurate reports, they were 80% less likely to make false reports. Tell us more about what, what exactly you know, happened. And, it's you know, true. What did it's they find? such an amazing experiment. And, you know, I think it, it goes to the importance of, of, you know, key performance indicators of mm -hmm. who, you know, what you're being rewarded for and who is rewarding you. You mm -hmm. know, the same could be said about, you know, the ratings industry in mm -hmm. general. Yep. That, you know, companies pay the rating industry, you know, what if they were to like just pay into a pool and randomly get assigned Correct. the rating agency that could make a, a big difference. Um, but, you know, in in a situation where the company pays you to audit the books, mm -hmm. you know, it's in your interest 
not to point to problems because that's going to cause a big problem for the company. And they're going to be like, next time let's go to someone who makes it easier, easier exactly. for us. And some companies, some auditors have been doing it for like 20 years for the same company, right? Even uh, Anderson and Enron you talked about, and then so are other cases, right? Where uh, they have been together for a very, very long time. And it's, you know, I think it makes sense to, to change things from time to time. It's either new techniques come in, seeing something with a fresh eye mm-hmm. will often help. The, and it's, it's, not, it's not even that it was necessarily the fault of the previous auditor that they didn't see it. It's, you know, it's like when you're, when you're doing a book. You know, that's why you have an editor who hasn't had their head in a book for all this time. It's why you have a separate copy editor. You have a separate proofreader. You have beta readers. You have people who haven't seen it before because that fresh eye is so powerful in, in spotting mistakes that it's just so much harder to see when you're on the inside. Right. Absolutely. So, so let's, let's um, change gear a little bit. And we talk about, uh, you know, uh, there was a very interesting uh, quote, I and mean, there are plenty of interesting quotes in your book. So the, the other one that uh, sort of caught my eye was the uh, Vladimir uh, Popov, uh, the Russian economist. And uh, where you say that, like, what makes the most difference to a country's growth prospect is not the speed with which it reforms, but the strength of its decision-making process. And you discuss China's reforms and, you know, you have a lot of engagement with China. So what are the strengths of its institutions and processes beyond what people say it's the authoritarian style of government? Yeah, well, you know, it's interesting. Spending time in China has has been amazing because there were, um, you know, I started my career in Latin America and Europe and and hadn't really uh, started going to China until I think uh, 2010 or 11 was the first time, so about 10 years. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's all, you know, fairly new. And so, of course, the things that you hear in the States are mm-hmm. all filtered through our own propaganda lenses and um, it's interesting you know, that friend, as an American you you, are, you mentioned that <laughs> it's, it's one of those things it's, and you know and like I, I you know I love my country but I think we need to be honest about ourselves and actually my friend Ann Lee has written a lot about what the U.S. can learn from China and um, and talks about you know sort of a civil service culture mm-hmm. um, and I think you know I think, think there are the, the ability to to look long term there and you have people on all sides of the what kind of government is best argument it's actually kind of interesting to me that some countries are very evangelical about their their kind of government they want mm-hmm. everybody else to have the same kind and it doesn't necessarily work for everyone else Correct. and you know it, there's a certain different kind of accountability in that in the states you know you kind of push the problem down to the to the next people you can always like blame everything on the opposite party but when you only have one party you can't <laughs> You can't do that. that, Um, And, you know, and there are pros and cons of, of, you know, both sides. Um, You know, I do think that, you know, in some cases, you know, being comfortable saying, hey, we have a problem, uh, which, you know, paradoxically in China with the embrace of the gray rhino concept, people are doing um, on certain issues much more than in the United States. But, you know, the ability to think long term and also the realization that you're not going to be able to kick it down the road Mm -hmm. to the next person. Um, So I think that, you know, there are there are channels of uh, accountability that a lot of Westerners don't necessarily appreciate. And, you know, obviously there are pros and cons to every system. I would love to see something that combines, you know, the best of all systems and, you know, gets rid of the, 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 the sore spots of, of all systems. And, you know, we're often, one country is often willing to say, hey, well, look, look at that terrible thing that 
that other countries doing while ignoring that they do the same thing themselves. Right. It might not be in the same context or the same scale, but you know, it's, it's kind of like, you know, people who live in glass houses. So I, <laughs> I think that, uh, you know, I think that a, a, a fresh eyed look, you know, within every country at what's working and what doesn't is, you know, is, is actually good, but it, that it'd be done in a constructive way. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. We're, we're not seeing that in the United States at all right now. Right. It's just like a bunch of mudslinging. Right, right. So, you know, um, we, we spoke about crisis and opportunities, but we, you know, uh, talked about the um, uh, television industry versus internet companies and so on. That is basically that uh, uh, two different entities can see crisis, a situation as crisis and opportunities differently. But, um, um, you know, one of the interesting things was you you discussed the case of uh, Portuguese cock industry and where you say that, uh, you know, as they, you give it as an example of uh, how even a um, old time industry, uh, you know, traditional industry doesn't have to be new era industry. It is possible to convert a crisis into an opportunity. So what did they do right? Well, you know, it's very interesting. You know, there were there was uh, there were a couple things happening. Once that there there were uh, increasing reports of a of a cork taint, cork mm-hmm. taint, uh, um, yeah, you know, uh, for the uh, wine bottles infection, right? yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, but then at the same time, these the sort of disruptors were coming in and particularly taking advantage of that, but saying, okay, you know, our plastic corks or our you know screw on tops don't have that same problem. Right. And uh, they were, you know, they were very proactive in mm-hmm. Portugal about, uh, you know, upgrading, modernizing, really dealing with the problem and being open about mm-hmm. it. Um, and then also looking at, at, you know, other aspects of, you know, cork being uh, sustainable, you know, it's yeah. not made from fossil fuels, it's the things that you grow and harvest. And so they, I think they really did a good job in, in recognizing the problem mm-hmm. and uh, you know gaining back some some market share because they looked and you know the sustainability side of it interesting is you know another very good good example of saying you know here's a problem that we've got a solution for so it's just sort of this intersection of you know environmental climate and specific industry problems and opportunities and you know this like identifying you know what's the problem are you solving for i mean like every vc pitch deck that's what right. they want to know. Or, uh, you know, human-centered design is really about that. You know, what's the problem that you're solving for? And really for, you know, for your customers. What's right. the problem you're solving Solving for which group? Because different groups are going to define the problem in completely different ways. Right. So, so you know, uh, when you say even a traditional um, industry can look at an oncoming rhino and, uh, you know, look through what they have done over the years and what are the possibilities and, uh, you know, systematically uh, try and work through and come out with new solutions to convert these into opportunity. So, you know, uh, there's something that, uh, you know, uh, we try to do in our school, uh, business school. So, you know, I teach in Singapore Management University and my colleagues and I teach a course called Managing in a Volatile, Uncertain, Complex and Ambiguous Context. And uh, we introduce that course, the triggers to VUCA and discuss strategies as well as thinking mindset that is required for, for, for the youngsters. 
uh, the students also have to do a project to identify VUCA challenges faced by a public company, which is you know not very different from you know the case that you talked about of um, the Portuguese cork, cork industry just you know looking at themselves and seeing like hey you know where have we gone wrong and what should we do? So and then they are supposed to recommend strategies based on what they have learned and what they can see out there to deal with them. But one thing we find that like you know, while many of them see that thing relevant, but some students still feel that uh, they're doing this because it's a core course, it's a compulsory course and things like that. They're not sure of the value of learning to manage in a, you know, this kind of a VUCA context, uh, you know. So I wanted, you know, if you could have a message for students as well as business executives, as to why this training in identifying gray rhinos, identifying VUCA challenges, and planning to deal with them is, is very important. Well, there's, there's actually a study that came out a couple years ago that I, I quote in You Are What You Risk, uh, and also uh, I wrote about it in my strategy and business column in a, in a very popular article, mm. uh, and they, from a group called Leaders on Purpose, mm. and they, they, they chatted with, uh, with dozens of CEOs and um, that report identified uh, dealing with uncertainty as one of the top leadership skills of the 21st century. Right. And uh, as we've seen over the last uh, 18 months of the pandemic, um, mm -hmm. you know, dealing with uncertainty and pivoting is, is really, really, really important. Absolutely. And it's interesting to look at the relationship between uncertainty and risk. Because, of course, you know, the classical definition of risk is, you know, something where you can assign a probability. It's a, a measurable yeah. uncertainty if you accept the, the circular definition. And uncertainty is something where you just you just can't assign a probability. It's very related to ambiguity. Like if, if you if somebody gives you a big bowl full of yellow and blue balls, if they say, you know, it's half yellow and half blue, you can calculate a, pop, pop, a probability and then you can take a risk as to you know, what sort of bet you're going to make. But if you don't know the number of yellow and blue balls, it becomes much harder to make True. that calculation decision. And, and I think in many cases, the, the risk values that we assign to things, that the probabilities or the credit ratings or things like that are an effort to sort of exert some sort of control where we mm. don't necessarily mm. feel control. Right. So I think it's important to understand the things that you can control Right. which is, you know, your decision-making process, the understanding of your purpose right. and your priorities, right. the ability to, to analyze and recognize what's in front of you. And the more you can do that, the clearer a path you're going to have through uncertain times. But it also involves the ability to give up a certain amount of control. So control what you can and recognize the things where you can't control and learn to look among those sort of very rough waters for opportunities, for areas where, where you have a, a natural advantage, uh, where you can solve a problem, where you can really draw on your strengths, but also if you have weaknesses, who can you turn to exactly. to help to, you know, to, to sort of fill those, those gaps? Absolutely. I mean, Wonderful set of points, and um, I hope that, like you know, more and more executives and uh, youngsters see the importance of it. So, viewers, please stay tuned for the second part of this conversation, uh, where Michelle and I discuss her latest book, "You Are What You Risk," 
and uh, she already gave you some hints of what uh, she's going to cover in that uh, discussion. Uh, so, you know, the book, the full title is The New Art and Science of Navigating an Uncertain World. So we will definitely be covering, uh, you know, do people take more risks shortly after eating spicy food? We will talk about risk personalities, how much is nature and nurture? Do male traders and high testosterone levels and, you know, do they end up with worse returns? We'll have a lot of interesting things to talk about in second part of the uh, conversation. So stay tuned. Thank you very much. Thank you for joining us in yet another episode of Move Conversations. Hope you enjoyed this episode. Please subscribe to the Move Conversations YouTube channel and press the bell icon to get notifications of new episodes. Thank you very much. Till I see you in the next episode. Thank you very much. Have a great day. Thank you.